You're listening to Fertile Minds Radio, and I'm your host, Hilary Rowland. Fertile Minds Radio is your place to learn how to maximize your fertility as well as your partner's. We cover the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of a fertility journey. You'll find tools to help you feel empowered and confident as you move from infertility to pregnancy to parenthood. If you're looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to help you reclaim your wellness to help you create a healthy family for generations to come, you're in the right place. This is Fertile Minds Radio. Welcome back, my listeners. I'm so excited that you are here today. I have a very special guest, Representative Lindsay Cross, who is a representative here in Pinellas County, Florida. And I have the privilege of knowing her in our town as well. So grateful that she's agreed to come on and have this important conversation. I just want to give you a little bit of background about who she is and why she is qualified to talk about this topic. So prior to making her move into government to be a voice for the people and in our environment, she spent 14 years actually helping to clean up the waters of Tampa Bay with the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. She graduated with honors from Colorado State University, earning a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Health, has a minor in Spanish, and a Master of Science in Environmental Science and Policy from the University of South Florida. She's here today to have a conversation about what is happening in Florida in terms of recent reproductive rights and the intersection of how environmentalism can and should play a role in how we look at some of these laws. And if you don't live in Florida, or maybe even the United States, because I know we have a lot of international listeners, you might be tempted to skip this episode, as it isn't exactly a heartwarming topic. And you may be asking yourself what in the heck this has to do with infertility. And I felt that this topic was too important to skip for a few reasons, which is what we're hopefully going to get into today. Number one being that bans on reproductive rights will impact reproductive technologies like IVF with the potential for jail time for discarding embryos as well as how medical care is delivered in times of emergencies, specifically in cases like eptopic pregnancies and DNCs when needed for natural miscarriages that also, by the way, typically happen around six weeks and are not discovered until much later. Most of the terminology that is used in these cases, I feel, is purposely confusing and misleading. I come across very educated women every day that do not know what some of these terms mean. So we want to educate you on so that when you are reading news articles about bills that are being passed in our state or in others, you understand what the consequences are. Uh, the second thing is the issue in our environment pertaining to forever chemicals, specifically endocrine disrupting chemicals or hormonal disrupting chemicals, and tainted water supplies being a big reason that we see increases in the rise of infertility, specifically in industrialized nations where we see this huge correlation with convenience chemicals. And this is particularly happening to those with sperm. And then, of course, those that have wombs are experiencing higher rates of miscarriage than ever before, about an increase of a percent per year. So from a scientific perspective, issues that we have created out of our needs of convenience are thought to be increasing, even things like possibly increasing gender dysphoria. And that is something that I don't take lightly. It is something that is very difficult to study, but I want to talk about if there is any possibility of that even being like money being put towards that to look at. Because if we don't know the science behind these changes, we can't effectively lobby for root cause change. And that does start with how we take care of our environment, especially when we're talking about having kids and the legacy that we are going to leave for our kids, basically, to clean up. And the third, if you don't live in Florida, um, you might have heard in the news that our governor is potentially going to make a run for presidential office in 2024. And if he wins, he will likely be bringing these views to a stage near you. So I think it's really important to come and talk to this. So I'm so grateful for you, Lindsay, even taking your time on a Sunday. I know your life has to be jam-packed right now with work. So welcome. Thank you, Miss Hillary. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. It's my, my we, know, very we, know each other, we know each other from such a different context that it's fun to be talking on this very scientific and purpose-driven podcast with you today. Thanks. Yes. And once upon a time, Lindsay was my yoga teacher and I was her meditation teacher. Right. It's very interesting to see how things end up 10 years later, right? Yeah. 
So before we get into all of those things that I just mentioned, I'm wondering if you could give like a current overview about how bills become laws, because I myself sometimes have to like really stop and think about this of like, Mm -hmm. how does our government work, which is sad. I'm going to fully admit that. And I think that there's a lot of people out there as well that happens to mostly because we learned about this in eighth grade and then it wasn't mentioned again. And we also, again, our international listeners might not quite understand all the steps that happen to a law. So can you just give like a brief five minute overview of that? Sure. So I can give you the what happens in Florida or how it's supposed to happen. I am one of 120 representatives in the state. There are 40 senators. So from in the House of Representatives, each of the 120 representatives is allowed to file seven bills. And those can be anything you want from something that's very local specific to something that has a lot has statewide implications. When you file a bill, staff within the House in different silos will decide the committees of references. So if you have a bill that's related to reproductive rights, it's going to be referenced to different health care committees. And if there's a fiscal aspect to it, it will probably be referenced to a healthcare appropriations committee. And so most bills get referenced to three different committees. The only, technically, the way to get a bill to the House floor or the Senate floor is for it to pass favorably in each of its committees of references. So if you went first to a healthcare regulations committee, you would have to pass by at least a majority vote and then get reference to its next committee, be heard there favorably, its next committee, and then finally go to the floor. The same thing is happening in the Senate. So if a bill is to become a law, you need to have a bill, either an identical or a similar bill on the House side and the Senate side. So those things are happening independently, where each House representative and senator are what's called working their bills to talk to the chair of each of those committees. So going to the chair of the first committee of reference and talking about what this bill does, why it's important, essentially lobbying them to put their bill, that bill on their committee agenda. There is also influence from the top down. So there are bills that may not be favorable to leadership that will never be heard in a committee regardless of how good they are. So there's a bottom down, but also a very top heavy aspect of having bills get heard through the regular committee process. There's also bills that are developed through the subcommittees themselves. So a healthcare subcommittee could develop a bill and then attach a representative or a senator to it at a later date. That's something that's probably more of a leadership priority than something that is a personal or a local priority from an individual representative of a senator. A lot of those times those get fast-tracked or they have less committees that they have to go through before they get to the House or the Senate floor. But if you are in the majority party, there's ways to work around the rules And particularly when there is a supermajority, which is what the Republicans have in both the House and the Senate chambers, they can waive the rules because they have more than two-thirds membership in the parties. Each year, there's a little over 2,000 bills that are filed. If you take 120 representatives by seven bills, multiply that. There's some other bills that don't technically count against your seven-bill count. You get to a little over 2,000 bills. We usually have around 200 bills that are actually that actually pass through both of the House and Senate chambers to get to the governor's desk. At that point, the governor can either sign the bill, he or she can veto the bill. If they do nothing, then the bill automatically becomes law on Jan- on July 1st, which is the start of our new fiscal year. So it's a very long pathway to get from an idea for a bill, working with the House or the Senate, what's called the bill drafting staff, to take an idea and have that put into policy language, which is referencing statutes and either modifying, deleting, 
changing existing statutes or adding new statutes to what we already have. Getting that bill language, having it referenced to the committees, lobbying each of the committee chairs, and then lobbying each of the members in each of those committees to vote for your bills. And again, that same thing is happening on the Senate. For the bill to become a law, the Senate and the House version ultimately have to become identical. So there are often amendments that are added to the bills throughout the process, either to correct mistakes or to hear from people, whether it's lobbyists from the interest group that it's that it's affecting or from t- people in the community that have recommendations for how to change things. By the time the bills get to the House and the Senate, they have to be identical. If that happens and they pass with a majority, again, then it goes to the governor's desk for signature, for veto, or to passively pass into law on on July 1st. Okay. I'm like tired just listening to that. I don't know how you do your job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what you're saying is that there is like this super complex set of rules and languaging that has to happen. But if you have the majority, you can change the rules and expedite it. Yeah. Am I hearing that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's why it's super important to not just vote for the president, but to vote in all of your smaller elections, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Absolutely. And again, if you understand this as a listener, forgive me, but there are a lot of people that I feel do not understand this. So Uh I feel like I'm going to take this opportunity to drive that home. Okay. So that answers my question of how these bills happen so fast that we're going to talk about today because of the majority. I want to start by talking about the one that could be potentially signed into law that's already on the governor's desk that is essentially going to ban abortion at six weeks. And what a lot of people don't understand too is it's more than Florida because it's going to cut off abortion care for the rest of the southern states that have already effectively banned it completely. And I just want to talk about some of the things that I see that I wonder if they were even taken into consideration when this was written, because most women don't even know that they're pregnant at six weeks, unless you're one of our listeners and you've been experiencing fertility challenges and you know the date that you ovulated and you're waiting with bated breath for your period to come. And that's about an average of one in six women. So for the rest of the other five, six majority of women, they probably don't know, especially if they have erratic cycles caused by PCOS or they're breastfeeding and they're not expecting or experiencing a period. They may not even know that they're pregnant until way past that. And I think the other thing that is really frustrating for me is that the way that pregnancy is counted in our medical system being from your last period. So even if you knew that you ovulated, say I ovulated two weeks ago, I skip my period today, I might be thinking, oh, I'm two weeks pregnant, but really I'm as pregnant as I, at least for my medical provider, as my last period. So if I had a long follicular phase that took me a while to ovulate, let's say three weeks, I'm five weeks pregnant. And then I can't even get into a doctor, an OB, at least here in the state of Florida to confirm pregnancy until about week eight. Yeah. Unless you had the privilege of being with a reproductive clinic that might do a test at week five. So is any of this like being talked about as these bills are written about like, is because everybody's here in government to allegedly serve the people, right? So how, like, why are we not talking about what happens to the majority of women in this case? Yeah. So I think there's what I've experienced in my short time as an elected official. And I've been up in Tallahassee for the past couple of years lobbying on behalf of environmental issues. So I have some familiarity with the process and some of the people here. But when the Republicans gained a supermajority in both the House and the Senate, and when Governor DeSantis won by such a wide margin, there was a feeling up here that they could do essentially whatever they wanted. That by winning a supermajority, it doesn't mean that a supermajority of Floridians elected them. There's been gerrymandering and redrawing of districts in ways so that it's that there are seats that cannot be won by the Democrats. There's been constitutional challenges on the validity of some of this redistricting. And so Despite the fact that there's a supermajority in terms of numbers, it does not mean that 
the supermajority of Floridians agree with some of these very conservative and I would say extreme viewpoints. But they've they've really been emboldened to to go to I think the very extremes of what their party has been, I don't want to say preaching, but like they're getting so far to the extreme that I think there's a lot of people within their own party. We know that the people support safe and legal abortion. And yeah, the majority of Americans, majority of Americans, the majority of Floridians. And despite that, even though there was a 15 week abortion ban that was passed last year, it's being challenged constitutionally for violation of our right to privacy there's there's a feeling that so many of these things are being done for DeSantis running for president to get the headlines and the donations that he needs to win the Republican primary nomination. I don't think there is a regard for how this actually affects people's lives. And yeah. so question about the nuances of six weeks of pregnancy, those things are not being contemplated. If you ask the bill sponsors about those things, sometimes it'll be someone who wants an all-out abortion ban. And so six weeks may feel generous to them. Or the science or the data does not matter unless it backs up the opinion that they believe or Mm -hmm. the worldview that they have. And so you can have a room full of people saying, this is my lived experience and this is how this will affect me. And this was my personal experience at X weeks of pregnancy. And the outcome is already, it's already fully realized. And so people coming up there, God bless all the people that do come and testify, but it's, it becomes just part of the theater in a way that they're there. They have to go through the steps of allowing public testimony, but it's not going to change whether these bills pass or not. Yeah. And that's really frustrating because for me, like there is this sense of that this is a bit of smoke and mirrors. Let's see how angry we can get people to look over there while we're also doing some other shady shit over here. Yeah. And not that this isn't important. Obviously, I think this might be the hill that I die on, it, which is ironic being a fertility specialist. <laughs> but it is frustrating that it just seems like it, it's, it's definitely for political grandstanding and has nothing to do with actually what the people that elected yeah. these people are for. And even what you say about the the public testimony, in one of the bills, they shortened it to 15 seconds of public testimony per person, correct? I was in that. I was in that committee. That yeah. was the House Health and Human Services on Thursday morning. And we had about an hour before we were going to be on the floor for House for session. And the chair of that committee said, we've got essentially held a democratic bill that was going to provide more money for kid care. So very pro-woman, pro-family, pro-kid, essentially held that hostage and said, Mm -hmm. the longer it takes you all, the less time we'll have for this bill. Ultimately, that bill was able to be heard and voted on favorably. But that's that's the type of narrative that we're hearing. There was a packed room of people from all over the state. There was a, a pregnant woman from West Palm who had driven up there and said, previously in my life, I had to make the choice to have an abortion. I'm now pregnant with my child. And I am so grateful to be in this position right now. And that is why I support other women and their choice. And she had 15 seconds to make that testimony. I can't even finish a sentence in 15 seconds. I'm pretty long-winded. And it is, yeah, I feel like they want to just get people frustrated enough that we just give up and then they get to do whatever they want, <laughs> is my feeling on that. And to to hijack a bill that's going to help little kids get the funding that they need. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't exactly seem like fair rules at all. Yeah. And in terms of what you mentioned around the data, like we have a ton of data that points to what happens when you make women have children that do not wish to in terms of their mental emotional health, their poverty levels, the poverty levels of their children for the next two generations. And I can't help but wonder how purposeful that is. If they just read the data and went, oh, that's great. That actually behooves us even more (laughs) to do this. And I know you can't speak for them. That's just me talking. But yeah, it is wild to me that there is data there, but it's like they refuse to actually look at it unless it 
behooves their own agenda. The other thing that I guess I was curious about was that proposed law also included a bunch of funding (laughs) to the tune of $25 million for what they call crisis pregnancy centers, which are unlicensed, often religious organizations that counsel women to keep their pregnancies and masquerade as abortion clinics with no regulations, which having a license that's held by the Department of Health as an acupuncturist, like the amount of hoops that I have to jump through continuously every year (laughs) to then have somebody out on the street that can just set up shop and give medical advice and then be paid by the government $25 million. That seems like, I'm just wondering how that is even allowed to happen, especially when you compare it to like the budget, right? And where we're actually already putting money in known problems. So For instance, like we're only giving $5.4 million to address maternal mortality rates, which is a huge problem. We talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show, specifically for women of color. We only spend close to $8 million on domestic violence prevention, which we know is an even bigger problem than abortion. And we only spend $1.7 million for rape crisis centers. So how does this gets so imbalanced when we allegedly have separation of church and state in our government. In this bill, the six-week abortion ban that does provide funding for these for these centers, it is very clear from the bill sponsors that the intent is to influence people to carry their child to term. And there's a there is a prohibition on being able to use state funds to help for the transportation or support of people who have to go out of state to seek an abortion, to seek medical health care. But we are directly supporting some of these centers that really are masquerading as healthcare clinics. And their sole purpose is to convince people not to have an abortion, even if that was their desire. And you don't walk into an abortion clinic willy-nilly. That is something that is a heart-wrenching decision for anyone who has to make that choice. And there's intimidation that happens there. There's a lot of guilt. I know people who have had that experience, who've gone to one of those clinics, and some have been able to find a planned pregnancy or someplace after to actually seek true medical attention. But they are they are set up with the objective of convincing people to carry their child to term, even if that is not in in the best interest of themselves or their child. Like you said, no woman wakes up and says, I think I'd like to have an abortion today. Like I am on that list as well. At 16, I had an abortion for medical malpractice. I was given Accutane. And while I was on the table getting my abortion, the nurse looked at me and said, oh, I bet you are a patient of Dr. Blank. You are the third one we have seen this week. He's the only doctor in Sarasota County who did not put his patients on Depro-Provera or some kind of birth control. Now, like, it seems to me that maybe we should give women more time to make this gut-wrenching decision versus hurrying them along into something or getting them stuck somewhere. So it feels like this purposeful contradiction yeah. Uh, and what can we do about that? Yeah. There's also our existing law requires women to have two appointments 24 hours apart before they're able to get an abortion. And the bills that will pass, they restrict the use of telehealth. So if you think of Hillary, you and I live in an urban area. There are places where hypothetically we could get an appointment, but being able to if you miss a period and maybe you're four weeks, five weeks to be expected to get two appointments back to back within a week to make that type of decision and to get that health care and that consultation is it's optimistic at best to be able to have that. But to be in a rural area where you have may have very few clinics and few healthcare providers to not have the option to have at least an initial appointment on telehealth when the window of time is so minuscule is, it's I, it's very insulting to women. Yeah. You can't even get on my schedule with no. two weeks 
eight weeks as a new patient. I am an acupuncturist, not an OB. Most of my patients end up having to just pull their own labs for HCG because there's not enough OBs and we live in a big city. They don't even see you until eight to 10 weeks. So that disconnect is something that it's just really want to drive home because regardless of where you sit on either side of this hot button issue, to understand the facts of what it's actually like to try and get an appointment because you don't know until you're pregnant and God help you. If you actually don't have an existing OB, you're going to be towards that 10 weeks. And if you are someone that is impoverished or is living paycheck to paycheck, you're probably having to go to work instead of staying home and thinking about how to make these decisions and get to these appointments. So I feel like that's also who it's going to hurt worse. And then we're also talking about then how that plays into maternal fatality later yeah, due to lack of care. So just really wanting to let people know what's happening so that they can have conversations with it. Cause you can still choose for yourself to be completely pro-life, but if you don't understand what it's like for another woman, then it's very difficult to make these decisions, but you need like blood pressure medication. Um, hard when when I was in this committee on Thursday morning I had to excuse myself a couple times because I got very emotional listening to people's testimony and I knew this was an important issue for me but I it wasn't until I was in that committee meeting questioning the bill sponsors and seeing all the people in the audience who were there to testify and hear their stories that I realized just what we were doing and how far backwards we're moving in terms of rights for women and valuing women's bodies and choices and reproductive health care. It's, it's draconian what we're doing. And it's it's hard to be part of this, knowing that there's so little that even me as an elected official can do. Yeah. How, I don't, is there just enough meditation in the world to help that? I don't know. <laughs> how do you manage with that when you're in your job for the, to help serve? And then you feel like you're just asked to like sit on your hands basically because somebody's changing the rules. I can't, I don't I, like, I thank you for getting up and going to work every day. Cause I don't know how I could do that. <laughs> it's gotta be difficult. I'm grateful that I have my dog here. And- <laughs> Yes, Cooper, the emotional support animal. (laughs) So is there anything that you can speak to in terms of the current bills where they're talking about where the languaging about where life begins? Because I feel like this is where it starts to really run into what could potentially happen to IVF. So there have been comments and I don't remember if it's been from the bill sponsors or from people. Some people have testified in committee that they don't think the bill goes far enough that it should be at conception. And that does raise questions because I have I have friends who have done IVF. And does that mean that they're fertilized eggs? Is that life there? What happens to those fertilized embryos? Does it mean that you have to have 10 fertilized embryos? If that's the number that you have frozen, it leaves a lot of questions. And there's many people that are seeking options to become pregnant. And so there, there is a lot of gray area there. And I think it depends on who is in power and either what their opinion is or what the politically astute position is going to be. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are super misinformed about what an IVF cycle actually entails. Like, I think people have this like myth that you're just going to go in, get pumped full of drugs and they're going to pull out five eggs and you're going to have five that you freeze. And they don't understand that there is the tragedy of human biology that is actually getting worse because of our own hand and what we're doing with convenience chemicals. But if you have a 35-year-old woman who has, let's say, an outstanding retrieval cycle where there's 20 eggs retrieved, that is really great for that number for a woman of that age. You might have 18, 17 of them get fertilized, right, that are mature enough to fertilize. And then you come back to day three And you're probably going to be down to somewhere around day, like around 12. And then depending on the health of the sperm of the male partner, 
you're going to then see that your numbers are probably going to drop between day three and day five as this organism moves into a blastocyte. You're probably going to drop down somewhere around six, so about 50%. And then you're going to send those, if you've elected for genetic testing, you're going to send those off to a lab to have eight cells removed to hopefully understand if there's chromosomal issues like Down syndrome or Turner syndrome. And you might luckily come out with two. So saying that life begins at fertilization is just like, we're not even paying attention to biology 101 of how rare it is for not only for it to be fertilized, but then for it to go on and have a healthy outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think there's there's this huge disconnect. And even my patients who are well-researched in IVF are shocked when they get in there. And then that is the reality of the numbers. So to even be talking about jail time for that for me and I realize this could sound like conspiracy theory but what happens if you have a natural miscarriage and you've charted your cycle somewhere are you then scooped up you made life go wrong like where do we draw the line in that and how do we ensure that women are protected in terms of their rights yeah Hillary I think this is a year where there's such extreme policies that are being passed that are going to have so many unintended consequences that some of these things will have will be worked out in the court system. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there's going to have to be rebuilding in political parties to change the dynamic of the leadership so that we can roll back and, and fix some of these policies because I don't think on their own. I don't think they are, they're not good policies. They are often more for headlines, for news headlines, than actually geared towards what is in the best interest of Floridians or Americans, not even just Floridians overall, not even just Republicans. So there's going to be a lot of cleanup that we have to do, whether it's in reproductive health care, in our education systems, in so many different facets of government and how we as an advanced society, how we govern ourselves. We've gotten to a point where we are alienating people. We are othering people. We're creating a system where power rests in such a few minority, few number of people. And the outcomes long-term are not going to be good. Yeah. So being that you've had this honor of having a seat on the inside, if you will, how do we like even begin to rehabilitate what seems like a grossly dysfunctional democracy at this point? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm using that word loosely. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the work is organizing in communities and doing voter registration and working within communities to become, to be more engaged. There are things that we're not going to be able to tackle for many years because the way these House and Senate seats are drawn are going to be unwinnable for a while. And I keep thinking like, we're doing so many horrible things right now. What is there left to do? And then they'll (laughs) Don't say that. Don't say that. (laughs) And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't realize gerrymandering actually happened here in Pinellas County in terms of redrawing the lines and kicking out lines. And that just seemed to just, it was like, it was not even a headline. It was like, you had to like almost dig for it. I feel like, I I don't know, which seems again, purposeful. I think you've said earlier about so many things that they just wear you down, beat you down. It's like the dust hasn't even settled on one bad policy or one extreme move before there's another one. It's like, I haven't even caught up. We haven't been able to get our attorneys on on this action. You're taking district attorneys out for trying to stand up for reproductive justice, like people who have been elected positions and they're losing their seats and you can't catch up because there's just something else that's happening. So it is intentional. The pace of some of this is very intentional in making it so that you physically, mentally, emotionally, 
cognitively cannot keep up with everything. And that's very intentional. It feels like being in an abusive relationship that you just, you're stuck and you're like, oh, so how do I just go about keeping my head down and getting through? Because I'm not powerful enough to fight back. And to hear myself as an American say that is, is so disheartening to even that I'm even saying those words out loud, let alone putting it on blast on a podcast, right? This is the reality of what's happening. You brought up this really important point about education, which is why, even though I feel like I'm going to stroke out when I talk about these things, I feel like I have to, because there's also this purposeful attack on education, whether you're talking about taking books, banning books, not being able to say the word gay. And now there's a bill being floated that you can't talk about or teach about the biology of menstruation <laughs> before the sixth grade. I know. Which makes me want to drop every expletive there ever was because we're shaming what our bodies do. And by the way, without vaginas and periods, no human would be here. I know. Right? I know. So like, why are, like, how can they even take themselves seriously of the land of the free? And we're ripping it. Ed- we're saying, You can't even educate on basic biology. Yeah. It's very much like the close your eyes, put your fingers in your ear. If you can't see it or hear it, it doesn't exist. And that's not I feel like I'm living in a South Park episode sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah. So, you know, that I guess the other thing that I answered my question, this is probably not happening because it's, there's an agenda, right? They don't want to hear the whole story. But most women get their period in the United States somewhere around between eight, eight and 12. So are we just going to lay waste to those eight, nine, 10 year olds that get their period and they think that they're dying when they go to the bathroom in recess because yeah. no one's told them about their period? I think there's, I think there's this expectation or this ideal family that some of these laws are written for where The parents, there's a lot of talk about parental choice and education and with in terms of healthcare and reproduction. And it's viewing this thing from a lens, a very unrealistic lens for most people. The nuclear family is not the reality for a lot of Floridians. Mm -hmm. And just because you have a mother and a father doesn't mean that it's a perfect family dynamic or that you're getting all the information you need at your, at home. My mother was a teacher. She was also a sex ed teacher for a while. That's part of, of biology. And that's part of learning about who you are as a person and what's happening to you. And so that's it's not only natural, but it's safe. To, to learn about that. And it's the right thing to do, educate people because education does free you and empower you. And so all of these policies designed to, I think, keep people ignorant are very harmful. And they're, I, again, they're going to have negative repercussions. We know that, that sex education is important for reducing pregnancy, for reducing STIs. Abstinence, it's great if you can practice abstinence, but that's not the reality for every young person. And so often learning about your body and STIs and reproductive health care can help you make better and more informed decisions. And not having that information doesn't mean that those things are not realities. It just means that that something that could be avoided or could be mitigated becomes a crisis. And I think that there's a disconnect on the education piece of what we're doing environmentally in terms of precocious puberty, right? So getting your period that early, what we say is menarche, again, using these words to educate, a lot of that is sped up by the hormones in our foods, specifically the foods that you're allowed to buy on food stamps, genetic modification of foods, pesticides, bisphenol A, phthalates, all of that is what is like taking this freight train of puberty backwards to age eight. And no little girl wants their period either, but it's a reality of life. I remember crying when mine came and I had a mom who would talk to me about it. Like I knew it was going to happen and it was still this tumultuous thing, even though she wanted to like celebrate it and get me ice cream. I wanted no part of it. And I think people don't understand that 
it's not just the education about your cycle and how it works and when you can get pregnant and when you can't, but it's the education about biology and how we are actually the reason for these things speeding up. We are, we ourselves as convenience humans are the reason that we're having to have these conversations so early. And I'm just curious if there is, if anybody in the legislature of Florida is talking about putting money towards actually researching how chemicals affect sexual development, infertility, and things like the potential of gender dysphoria, right? Not saying that's a cause for it, but that it could actually enhance it the same way that we've seen it in change sexuality and bio species, biomarker species like reptiles, right? Like frogs. Am I making sense? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) So the short answer is I have not seen any policies about that, but I think that sounds like something I need to sponsor next year. (laughs) You know, we are a very convenience driven society and there's such a reticence to talk about what the long-term implications are of our convenience-driven lifestyle, whether it's single-use plastics, whether it's chemicals, whether it's things as seemingly innocuous as plastic straws, like those things that we enjoy. I'm drinking a, a canned beverage because I don't have my soda stream up here with me, but there's waste with so many of these things. And there's chemicals and the processing, our materials are not, are largely not getting recycled or reused, but that's not a consideration. There's been bills introduced almost every year that I've been involved to try to put a a fee on bottling water to try to get us away from water bottles. I see the people in my own chamber that in our lunchroom, everything is styrofoam containers and plastic water bottles and disposable everything. The gift that I gave all of the other members was some reusable cutlery. And I think I've seen one or two people actually use it. And I'm like, come on, it's so easy just to wash this out in the bathroom sink and reuse it. And these things, we throw it away and we don't think about it. But there are serious complications with some of these forever chemicals with some things in firefighting materials, PFAS and PFOAs that we know cause testicular cancer that are in so many things that we use, even things like artificial turf, where we are understanding it contains these chemicals. And frankly, our wastewater treatment systems are not designed to remove these these chemicals, these contaminants of emerging concern. Our septic systems certainly are not designed to do that. And so we're getting these chemicals in our water systems. We have seen changes in the sex of amphibians as a result of a birth control of other chemicals that we ingest, we use, and that gets into our water supply. There's, I'm sure there's scientists that are looking into these impacts to humans I haven't seen it at a policy level in the state, but I think it's absolutely something that we need to be looking at because the money we're putting towards our wastewater treatment and some of our public health programs, if we knew how much we really had to spend to protect our water supply, both for humans and for fish and wildlife, would be astronomical. And so I think it's easier just not to fully understand it and pretend like everything's okay. Yeah. And if you live here coastally, you understand it's not okay. We've got red tide like every other month. And that's just one thing that you happen to be able to be alerted to, which is thought to be largely in part due to runoff from fertilizer, right? And that does, am I correct in thinking that that actually pushes those blooms to happen? Fertilizer, fertilizer and waste, whether it's human or animal waste, they all contain nitrogen and phosphorus, which are the nutrients that the plants need to grow, but also algae needs to grow. So the more of that, you're supercharging it. You're allowing these blooms to continue to proliferate and get to the stage where they can be very disruptive to human and marine life. 
Okay. Yeah. I think that, like you said, we're being very short-sighted, but there is emerging evidence. So I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Shana Swan. She's an epidemiologist. She's author of Countdown. Okay. Um, in 2017, her and her colleagues basically set out to see what was happening to the to sperm, that yeah. to the world's population. And what they found was, is that it was deteriorating by a percent a year, I believe, since the 1980s. Basically, it correlated with the influx of all of these chemicals. Wow. And what they have sounded the alarm on, which is, it's crazy to me, it's another, it, as humans, I don't think we're that good at when something's dire, we want to look the other way because the brain is, is wired to avoid suffering. But they have pointed out that by 2045, most men in industrialized nations will not be able to father children. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is a not wow. just one doctor saying this is whole committees. And that's troublesome when you're thinking about having a child that your child that you create may not actually be able to procreate and live in a world where that's not an issue, especially without help. And if we're talking about changing the way IVF, where these laws could potentially change it to where you can only extract one egg at a time, you're then talking about only the richest people on the planet being able to electively raise their hands and say, I'd like to reproduce. Which when I think about global warming and all of the yelling about that, which yes, that's real, but it's it's so far out compared to what is about to happen in terms of reproduction. Like I feel like mother nature is really strongly trying to send us the message that she always wins and we're not listening. So how could people go about getting someone like yourself or and somebody on the other committee, since we have to have bills that match mm -hmm. to actually start thinking about authoring bills where we're putting money towards investigating what is happening with our convenience chemicals and the health of our reproduction. Yeah. I think raising the issue is the first thing. So now I'm totally intrigued and now I'm going to want to look into this some more. And so in, in some ways, if there's an issue, that's a, it's a good issue. I think it does have the potential to go somewhere, it's not going to happen as fast as any of us want to. Let's say this becomes something that I'm really committed to. I introduce a bill next year. I would have to start working within the members of the House and then also find someone, a counterpart on the Senate to sponsor that bill, start talking about the issue. Probably wouldn't go anywhere the first year. Maybe the next year you get a committee hearing, you start to, to share it. Maybe you can get someone to come and speak on the issue. And you just have to, I hate the term, like you have to keep chipping away at it, but sometimes it does take a lot of persistence finding someone else who can be a champion of it with you, finding someone who is going to be in leadership that understands the importance of it, maybe giving the bill to someone else who has a higher chance of having it heard and then being there in the background to provide information and just doing whatever it takes to get that issue out there and start moving along. We've seen that like biosolids is way more simple, but biosolids are essentially dried poop, if you will. So it's the, the effluent from wastewater treatment plants that's dried and treated to a certain level. There's different classes of it. Some of it can be used as fertilizer, like on golf courses. Some of it has other uses. That's something that the environmental community has been talking about for years, that those biosolids have not only nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, but they also have some of those legacy chemicals in there. So there's probably PFAS, there's probably estrogen, there's probably some endocrine disruptors. And if you're applying that to an agricultural field, is that getting integrated into the, the vegetation, the food that we eventually eat or into, into the meat products? We've I think we've seen that chickens who are fed certain foods have higher estrogen and then maybe we're seeing a correlation with that with earlier onset of puberty with children. It's taken years for us to start to address biosolids 
finally this year, there's a bill about biosolids where we're finally starting to make some headway. So that's just to say, these things take a long time unless it's something that leadership loves. And it's unlikely that there's going to be a leader in the next couple of years that is going to be a huge proponent of this, but I'm going to start, I'm going to start talking about it. I'll send you your book. I think it's with your background, you will be appalled and fascinated, (laughs) but it's a hard thing for me to talk about because again, it is like a dark, it's the shadow side of what I do, but it's also the reality. And like you said, things take time, right? So for instance, in order to actually study what endocrine disrupting chemicals do in utero, that will take 20 years, right? That'll, that will take looking at the exposures that a woman has in pregnancy, either like through her writing down everything that she was exposed to or consumed or took in or testing of the placenta to see what was there. And then following the health of her children for 20 years to see what their outcomes are and everything from reproduction to sexuality. And I don't know that like we're equipped for the long game because we've just become so right now oriented. So I want to cheerlead this and be like, eat your Wheaties, ladies. I know there's a lot of smart women out there that that know people and places and start talking about this. But what you're saying is, and I'm saying, I think is that this is not going to go away and we have to keep talking about it, even if it's unpopular. And I think some of these issues and what we're seeing in terms of our health and our reproductive health and the correlation with our modern society and particularly the just the number of chemicals and how how advanced these chemicals how our food has become so bioengineered that you're you'd be hard pressed to find something that does not have some chemical industrial footprint or fingerprint on it, if you will, because it has made things more convenient and cheaper. It makes it more difficult to, to say, we're going to, we're going to go back to the way we used to do things. There's also an incredible amount of money and lobbying behind a lot of the industries, whether it's our, our food production or our chemical industry or energy production to to influence policy and politicians. So it is really difficult to make change. Do you think we'll ever get rid of lobbyists? Like that, like a pipe? (laughs) No, I don't think we will. (laughs) Because I feel like you can't change healthcare without that, without special interest groups. I don't know how you change healthcare for this large population without taking special interests out of it or I think this the court case with Citizens United, which gave corporations standing as humans, had a has a lot to do with influence and some of the money in politics. And mm-hmm. so that has been incredibly detrimental. There's as a former lobbyist, I know that I did a lot to help educate elected officials and you can't know everything on all of the issues. Lobbyists, particularly because they often are in the field for, for decades, have history. They understand how you've gotten to that point. But you have to look at who is paying them and what their motivation is and decide whether it comports with your values and the people that you represent. On the head, not all lobbyists are bad, but there's certainly lobbyists that that are influencing things in a way that affects most people in a negative way. I certainly did not mean any disrespect. No, I know that. <laughs> at all. Yeah. I, I guess because when I think of lobbyists, I automatically think that it's rigged. Like I don't see both sides getting equal time. And please tell me if I'm wrong <laughs> with how that goes with corporations. Not wrong. Okay. Not wrong. All right. So I definitely want to, to end this on like some positive notes. What's good? Is there, are there some good things coming down the pipeline for Florida? (laughs) What are you really like proud and excited about that is going to get passed or might get passed? It can be anything just so that we have something like good. I've been able to amend a bill so that we are not rushing redevelopment in coastal areas, coastal high hazard areas after storms and hurricanes. And I think it's that 
yes, we want to rebuild, we want to get our economies back, but if someplace is very vulnerable and it's going to impact coastal ecosystems and beach nesting animals or shorebirds, or it's a place that is potentially dangerous for humans to live in, we shouldn't be rushing that process. So I've been able to make a bill a little bit better. Sometimes that's the best you can do is make something bad or mediocre a little bit better. And so you take some of those those small wins. We're always going to have things that are making advancements in different policy areas or being able to support projects through appropriations that are meaningful for our community. So there's always positives from every legislature. I think the balance this year is going to be much more on the negative side and just implications for so many people in our society and people who are maybe marginalized already making life even more difficult. Okay. So what you're saying is eat your Wheaties, team up with people that you love and care about and make you feel good so that you can continue to fight the fight. <laughs> Go and outside, get some fresh air. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It will and control what you can control, which is your thoughts and your emotions. And then when we do feel anger or frustration, like I have vocally said today, using that to actually motivate you, using that to move you forward. And I'm just so thankful that we have somebody like yourself representing us. And I hope that you do have aspirations to go further in this system so that there is a voice of good being heard, at least on the shoulders of some of the people there, asking them to think about the rest of the people. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on your podcast. Oh, thanks. It's so tiny in the grand scheme of things. But if we don't think about the impact that we could have, and if this just educates one person, then it's done its job because then hopefully that person will go tell 10 other people. I think all we can do is get back to being able to have meaningful discourse, even Mm -hmm. if we're on different sides at the risk of sounding very kumbaya. But I do believe humans can get along and love each other and have different opinions and still manage to make rules and laws that benefit the majority of people and don't continue to make life harder for those that it's already quite difficult for. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the end. I think this is a, a a dark chapter in Florida's history, but I think we'll find ways to correct some of these mistakes and we'll continue to see new people who are empowered to to run for office and to organize and to be involved in their community. And I think make things right. It just won't be this year. Where can people go to find you and to support you if they would like to? Yeah. So I'm on all, I'm on all the social media except for TikTok. Yes, I, was me so too. I was so excited about being on TikTok and then I got an account and I've never even logged in, but yeah. my handle is at Lindsay Cross FL. And it's spelled L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-C-R-O-S-S-L as in Florida. So I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lindsay Cross FL. Okay. And then you also have a website where people, when it's time to run again for office, please tell me you're running. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've, I've already filed for re-election. We cannot fundraise during the sessions. Well, we've got another month, a little over a month until the Florida session ends and then we'll be right back at it. Okay. So if you want to help push Lindsay forward, hopefully into higher positions, hopefully to some of those committees where she can really do a lot of change, you can go to her website, lindsaycrossfl.com. Certainly please consider doing that collectively. Even when we all just give a small amount, it goes much further than you think. And again, I just, I, I know your job, like to say that it's not easy is the understatement of the century right now. So I just really commend you for, for working for all of us basically tirelessly. So thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. It was absolutely, absolutely an honor. Yeah. And to everyone that listens and is still listening, especially those, thank you for educating yourself and trying to learn all that you can so that you can continue this conversation in more neutral, less emotional ways so that people will actually listen and just to basically let people know 
that there is an intersection between environmentalism and how we take care of the planet and what's happening to our bodies in terms of reproduction for both men and women and everybody else in between. So thank you so much. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's content and found it useful. This podcast is a labor of love from an entire team of people. We would love it if you shared the wisdom that you just banked or left a review on iTunes. Reviews help women just like you across the globe find this valuable information when it's their turn to conceive. We would consider it the ultimate compliment. Bye for now.